So we'll ask that provider, hey, this person is starting to have life skill concerns that is affecting their ability. Can you go out there and help? And some of the times the provider's like, yes, we're going out. And then other times there is that hard gap that gap of service. And that makes it really hard when we're talking about eviction prevention within our housing. So Be Connected really fills that just that middle gap and trying to keep working with that landlord. It really does take that whole community to keeping that person house. And when those providers are not coming out to those wraparound service tenants, the person continues to go back into homelessness over and over again. And then the rehouse, homeless, rehouse, homeless, and nothing happens. And so just because someone has a wraparound services, um, we need those providers in those homes. And we're not always seeing that like actually happening. Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears. We're looking at a human being, and there's a life story. 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 Connection to the people we don't know that live near us. An Elevated Denver starts now. Welcome back to the Elevated Denver podcast, where we're bringing key topics and stories about homelessness to light. In today's episode, we explore evictions and their role in our homelessness crisis. Eviction mitigation is a critical component to addressing and preventing homelessness, and yet evictions continue to increase, with over 1,200 in Denver in May alone. I'm here with Leanne, Jana, and Myra. Through the episode, you'll hear Jana and Myra asking our guests questions, and Leanne tying some threads together through the narration. I think you'll enjoy it, so let's dig in. Before we start, we want to let you know that we went through an informed consent process with everyone we interviewed, and before airing each of these episodes, we sent the recording to the interviewees to make sure that they were still comfortable with us sharing their story. I want to acknowledge that parts may be triggering for some listeners. If so, please take care. Evictions are a topic many people are talking about. When Mayor Johnston sat down with us back in May during the runoff, he spoke about evictions and eviction prevention as a key component of solving homelessness. As an organization focused on solutions, we believe in prevention, and we wanted to dive in and learn more about evictions in our community. We talked to people on all sides of evictions, tenants who have direct experience, landlords, and organizations trying to support people staying housed. What we learned surprised us. There are multiple steps before an eviction where a person could use support to stay housed. This episode changed our perspective, and it might change yours as well. An eviction is when the tenant is court-ordered to leave a property, and it is enforced by the sheriff. According to the Eviction Lab, there are over 23 evictions filed per day in the city and county of Denver. This number is astounding, and yet evictions are often the final step in a long landlord-tenant process around rent payments, habitability, 
or disruptive tenant behavior. We spoke to Dan Brooks, a local landlord with over 200 tenants across the city, whose business has been in his family for 90 years. Dan's properties house many low-income individuals and families, including many on vouchers. He talked with us about the two types of evictions. What's most important about evictions is that there's two types of evictions. There's a monetary eviction where it's simply about rent, and then there's a breach of contract, which usually has to deal with a behavioral issue. The monetary issues are simpler to solve. Non-monetary evictions are extremely challenging. To get to that point is almost impossible. And as a company, we have only done it twice in 90 years. Dan told us that instead of filing an eviction, landlords usually try to force a mutual rescission of the lease, which annuls the contract and releases the tenant and landlord from the lease. This agreement allows the tenant to keep their voucher if they have one, but it can be quite a weight on the system because this person may end up going from apartment to apartment without having support to address the offending behavior that caused them to go down this path in the first place. When we dug in deeper, we realized that evictions are a far more complex issue than we thought. And like everything we've been exploring this season, there are a thousand different stories around evictions. We were lucky to sit down with a few individuals who shared their eviction experience with us. First, we talked to Danya. I experienced my first, what they call slumlords, in Washington, D.C., and that's when I started experiencing uh, eviction. After D.C., Danya moved to Denver and thought she had found an affordable home that would work for her and her adult children, but soon found that the house was nearly unlivable and the management company was unresponsive. I moved in a home. It was dirty when I went to look at it, but they said everything would be good and crisp and clean when I moved in. The deposit was the same as the rent, which was $25.75 a month for an old house in Centennial. Four of us moved in, three of us working, so we knew we could handle that. The type of work I was doing was from home. I take care of developmentally disabled clients. Well, when we moved in, no paint, holes in the walls, floor filthy. I had to keep the truck an extra two days because I had to clean up. We even had like a big fluorescent light in the middle of the kitchen fall down, crash, with water leaking. Couldn't use the main bathroom for over a month because it wasn't working. I mean, real bad conditions. We were kind of stuck at that point. It had cat urine in the basement. Like I said, the main uh, bath not working. They had to refinish the tub. We didn't get that done for over a year. It was a number of, it was a long punch list of items that was just terrible. They did not want to fix it. And I tried to talk to them. We still continued to pay the rent. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to hold the rent. Maybe we can get some movement. No, we got court papers. Then the court papers gave me the option to mediate. So I kept calling and asking to mediate. 
they ignored everything. Then COVID hit, the quarantine. <laughs> I think the, about two weeks after the quarantine, we had court online. The judge didn't want to hear nothing I had to say. She just gave them everything. Danya's home was uninhabitable. Despite repeated requests and complaints, the management company, which she described as a national company, did not respond to her requests. Finally, Danya started holding back rent to see if that would trigger her landlord to get in touch. It did, in the form of an eviction notice. Leo has a different story. He and his roommates thought that they were paying rent to the owner of their apartment, but in fact, they were paying the original renter who took off with their money and never paid the actual landlord. Because this all happened during COVID, when there was a moratorium on evictions, Leo and his roommates stayed in the apartment for months without paying rent. However, as soon as the moratorium was lifted, they were evicted. He got lucky that the eviction wasn't in his name, but rather his roommates, so it isn't on his record. My case is not your typical eviction. Basically, I rented a place from somebody that was the renter, and he hasn't been paying his rent for a while, and he rented it out to me, took the money, and then he left. And then the actual owners came, and they wanted us to leave, but we told them the situation, like, can you give us some time so we can pay you until we find a new place? They agreed, but then, like, last moment, they said, I'm sorry, but you guys got to leave tomorrow. But I told them, like, I'm sorry, but we made an agreement that you were going to let us stay until we find a new place. But they were not having it. They just said, get out tomorrow. And we told them, you know what, we're just going to stay here because it's COVID. So then what happened after the four or five months? Sheriff's Department came. And they had a whole team of people, and they just started taking everything outside after the, the eviction the, was lifted, that you can't evict people. There was an eviction notice, but it was not towards, like, on my name or anything. So the eviction wasn't in your name, therefore it didn't go on your record. Yeah, I don't have that on my record. That's why I, I can get a place right now. Rhiannon is someone who is on yet another side of evictions. She lives in an apartment building where the person on the floor above her has been exhibiting bizarre behavior and has been greatly disturbing Rhiannon, her daughter, and the other neighbors. It has been like a point of contention, a point of stress in my life, majorly. It's a building full of people that have faced or are currently facing extreme adversity. Um, there's a lot of domestic violence and interpersonal violence. There's always cops. There's always ambulance. There's always fire trucks coming to bring somebody to the hospital for alcohol withdrawal or having a seizure. The main issue that I've had with my neighbors is about the woman who lives above me. Her name is Deborah. She is an older woman and she is going through what I believe to be a drug-induced psychosis. And she's been disturbing basically the entire apartment building. She yells out of her window constantly at people to be quiet, people to stop looking at her through the windows, 
she truly believes that somebody or something is shaking her walls and her pipes and her windows and her chair that she sits in. The first issue that I ended up having with her was one night I was laying in bed, getting ready to fall asleep. And I heard her turn her vacuum on. And then 30 minutes later, the vacuum was still running and it just sounded like it was sitting still in one place, but on. And so I started to get worried. So I called in the non-emergency. I called a wellness check. I emailed the apartment management and it was a whole to do. It was on for like 14 hours. And it was like me calling the non-emergency multiple times, telling them about the wellness check, me communicating with the property management people, them showing up to the apartment, them coming into my apartment, listening in my room to the vacuum, going upstairs to her apartment, knocking on her door multiple times, no answer, knocking on it again, no answer. The police show up and she finally answers her door. And then she goes into this huge explanation as to why she is justified in leaving her vacuum on for 13 hours. So that was my introduction to Deborah. What was your hope? My hope was that even if she was not evicted, she could be like given a warning for eviction. Like, hey, if you don't stop stomping your foot and yelling and disturbing these people below you, you will be evicted. I just thought like a warning would help, you know? So I was constantly emailing the property management until one day she called Deborah on her personal line and like basically yelled at her and said, Deborah, you've got to stop. I heard Deborah pick up the phone and I heard her talking to Kathleen because she is sitting right by her open window in that back room. She was sobbing and bawling and still defending herself and saying that she wasn't doing anything wrong. She felt completely justified in what she was doing. So I think at that point, Kathleen realized that the situation was like hopeless, I think. So she completely cut communication with me. She stopped communicating with me after that. We asked about the police who Rhiannon had called repeatedly over the months this had been going on. They basically were just like, she's crazy, and said, sorry, thanks for letting us know. Rhiannon has compassion for her neighbor, but doesn't see another path to getting the neighbor's support and feels that pushing for an eviction might be the only way to get her out of the building and into assistance. As we're starting to see, evictions felt like a last resort in many cases. It turns out evictions might not be the right focus for preventing loss of housing. It might just be further upstream. Yes, we need more housing stock and we need wraparound services, but if we are not making sure those services are actually happening in their households and we continue to have drive-by case management, that we're not doing anything. We literally just are getting people housed only to, for them to be back on the streets within one to two years. That was Brittany Catalina, CEO and founder of Be Connected, a Denver-based company focused on housing, navigation, and housing stability for landlords and their tenants. We talked with her and two landlords to better understand the challenges they face in supporting tenants. We focus on housing navigation, housing stability, 
for landlords and their tenants. And we're the only tool that gives landlords the ability to hear from their residents. So we actually measure the social determinants of health of folks who are actually in housing so we can help get ahead of concerns before they get uh, before they are concerns. We make sure that tenants maintain housing so we give landlords an alternative to eviction. Keeping people in their homes I think is critical to eviction prevention. If landlords only tool is enforcing their lease it's a really black and white concept and when you're working with people who have mental health concerns or truly the number one reason for eviction is failed relationships, which isn't just people who are vulnerable that affects demographics and socioeconomics across the board. Here's Dan, the landlord again. What I need the most is I need a connection to services. I need a way to tell someone that, hey, I have someone that needs help. We did the registry for all the landlords in Denver and they took all the money and gave it to legal defense. But we could have done so much good by doing the little steps that would have prevented someone from ever getting to court. That money, instead of spent on lawyers to try and defend something that isn't gonna be defensible, could have been spent on the single mother who just needed $500 to fix her car so she could go to work. Dan shared with us an example of a tenant he struggled to find support for and had to resort to an eviction. Tenancy was a young individual, early 20s, was extremely quiet and was extremely uh, introverted in that he had troubles establishing relationships with people. So we were able to bond with the tenant and get him into a place, and we had him there. Tenant C was doing really well and uh, bonded with my staff at the apartment, and uh, COVID hit. And as he, as, when COVID hit, he lost all his resources. There was no support. And eventually, uh, tenant quit taking their medication. And after that, hallucinated and started uh, disturbing all the tenants, going to their doors at all times of the hours, to, to doing strange, crazy, weird, out of normal behavior. We tried bringing in the STAR unit. The building was on South Federal. And when the STAR unit came in, the tenant ran into South Federal. And the STAR unit and the police realized at that point, we shouldn't try and get them. So I'm left with a building of people who are scared and they want to leave. And many of these people are on vouchers and insecure in their housing. So uh, when a person in this mental spiral going down gets to this point, their care providers are faced with a, not me, but the, the people providing their care are faced with the challenge. We can either try and do like a 72-hour hold, which they tried, and he ran across the street. We have to get him to voluntarily come in. And if he won't voluntarily come in, what everyone doesn't know is at that point, they stop care. They will drop the care. So then it is dropped on the landlords. So what do I do? I am calling everybody. I am calling friends who are state legislators. 
and asking them what to do. These are the people writing the laws. What is their answer? Evict. You got to just evict them. Eventually, we evicted them, and they took them away to jail. It's probably, who knows what happened. But they ruined him. He was a functioning adult, and they just dropped his care. Despite Dan's many attempts, the care the tenant needed wasn't available, and Dan had to resort to an eviction. If support were available for Dan's tenant, perhaps the tenant would still be housed, maybe even mentally stable and back on his feet. We're going to take a short break and hear about another local podcast. Stay with us. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And we host the Integrated Schools Podcast, where we dig into topics about race, parenting, and school segregation. These conversations strive to live in the nuance of complicated topics. And while that can be uncomfortable, we keep having them because they help us make better choices. Not only for our own kids, but for all kids. Listen to the Integrated Schools Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to evictions. In addition to Dan, we interviewed landlord Grace Bergwin, who also owns several properties in Denver that have been in her family for decades. Here, Grace tells us a bit more about her properties and how she cultivates a sense of community. We generally have a portfolio of affordable mixed income and Section 8 housing. We were one of the first landlords slash property managers to deal with the veteran-assisted housing through the VA. And we also have some forays into supportive service housing and permanent supportive housing, and then also senior housing and kind of the gamut. But we really specialize in affordable and low-income housing tax credits and compliance-based housing. We're in the business of creating cohesive communities to make sure that everybody's kind of getting along, you know, that we're having mutual respect for each other and that you're setting rules that are guidelines to make sure that people have an enjoyable experience. And that's everybody in the community. Grace talked to us about evictions, an example of what she often deals with, how she tries to work with tenants to prevent evictions, and all the staff she employs to support tenants. Well, evictions are very resource heavy. So not only in staff time, not only in maintenance time, but also in kind of like emotional time, especially with people in the community, you're generally getting to the point of an actual eviction after a very long process. Is there an example that you could give us of incidences that led to that pathway of of eviction? You have to think about your, your I, I call them the nuisance tenant, the one that's partying until, you know, late at night, or you're in a community where you have kids and families and somebody's not respecting those boundaries. And 
if you don't have the process to say like this community is not for you, you know, that you're not following our rules, then your other tenants who are your good tenants that are, you know, doing everything by the book start to feel really uncomfortable and they feel like, well, why am I going to stay here if the rules don't apply to everybody, you know, and especially in our world where we deal with people who are coming out of homelessness, that's a very, very important component of building that trust and stability so that there isn't the rebound to homelessness. So you want to make sure that that mom who's coming off the street, who has her kid with her, feels really safe and secure in that apartment and that that's their safe space. Same with our veterans, same with our seniors, everything like that. So for the ones that don't follow those rules, it usually doesn't even come into an eviction. It usually comes into just saying like, Let's find a different path for everybody, which, you know, again, goes into the eviction prevention. We have on-site management staff. So we have a property manager, sometimes depending on the community size, a leasing agent that handle, you know, the general property management, day-to-day functions, collecting rent, posting notices, giving out demands, making sure that the property is looking the way it should and having some tenant relations. Then we also have our maintenance staff who are going and completing work orders and making sure that the building is functioning in the way that it should and that um, it also looks and maintains the way it should be. And then with our either our senior housing communities or our ones that have a higher level of need like permanent supportive housing, we have a supportive service team that focuses on activities and long-term sustainability planning for households. Over the years of doing this, we found that having your own staff is really important because they're the only ones that you can manage. We wanted to make sure that we didn't have a loss of service because we knew that other people would be feeling that disruption in their lives. Dan and Grace are unique landlords. They are longstanding members of the Denver community and care deeply about supporting tenants. They put many resources towards eviction prevention, sometimes at their own personal and emotional expense. Danya and Rhiannon have both experienced issues in their homes that were not their fault, and yet property management was not responsive, which has led to mental health impacts. Here's Danya. The disrespect on the phone, the disregard for our needs, very depressing, very degrading. I wrote m- emails telling them how I felt, how we felt, that nobody cared. Mental health goes into your dwelling. And when it's not appropriate, it really can't damage you and damage your situation and your family. And I got into one point where I couldn't hardly get out of bed, didn't know which way to turn. With the house being in that condition, it had a big effect on everybody in the household. It broke up my relationship with my boyfriend, who moved in. It broke up me and my adult children. The two younger children, they were living there. And we thought it was going to be a great place. Had everything been fixed, I would have completed the comfort for the family. We never got there. I never even put pictures on the wall or anything. It was just so depressing. And I found myself spiraling down and down. It just, it just created a snowball effect of depression and anger, and it broke us up. 
Now we don't want to live together at all. I'm homeless with a new eviction on my, you know, background. And my kids moved on. So I'm 52 and don't have a plan. Danya tried repeatedly to connect with the property management company to address her concerns. She and her kids began holding rent to try to get the management company to respond to their maintenance requests. After going to court, they paid the landlord $7,000, a large portion of what they owed, and applied for and received some COVID relief dollars for rent. But the landlord never addressed their concerns, and they were evicted. As we talked to folks, we heard more and more about the mental and emotional impacts of evictions. That's in addition to the impacts on one's housing stability. To understand the repercussions of having an eviction on one's record, we spoke with Lauren Rafter, a managing attorney at the Colorado Poverty Law Project. And what happens if eviction does go on their record? Yeah, so if that does, the sheriffs can come and move them out, typically 10 days, though there are some exceptions where it could be longer after the eviction judgment enters. So hopefully the tenants are able to move out before then because it can be really traumatizing to have law enforcement show up at your door and put all your things on the curb. They don't have any obligation to store your things or keep them for you or give you more time to move them around. And so oftentimes tenants lose a lot of their important possessions and go through a traumatic experience. And then the tenant needs to find somewhere else to live. And it can be really tough for tenants to find a new place if an eviction is on your record. That's one of the biggest barriers that we hear when we're talking to folks is that I'm unhoused right now. I'm trying to find housing, but I have an eviction on my record. And so no landlords will take me. And an eviction can be considered for seven years after it happens by landlords. As we've heard, there are truly many causes of evictions. Sometimes those evictions are unlawful, as Lauren talked about. More and more frequently, we've been seeing unlawful evictions where landlords say, I'm going to change the locks or they turn off the utilities so they don't even go through the court process. And recently, the law changed where there's a big fine that is attached to that kind of behavior where landlords can be fined at $5,000 plus any damages that might come along with it. But that's a lot of litigation to do. And in terms of like people going through the court process, oftentimes there are fixes. It's rent is a few days late and they're waiting for rental assistance. If you just give them more time, the rental assistance will come through. And when there are lease violation issues, the tenants often contest the allegations that are made by the landlord. But lack of knowledge of the court process, fear of engaging in the court process, lead to a lot of people being evicted or just accepting an eviction because they don't know that there's any other option. Not only do tenants need to understand their rights and have access to support when faced with an eviction, they need support before a situation escalates to an eviction. Landlords like Dan and Grace are doing what they can to address needs and support tenants maintaining stable housing. Our tenants are our livelihood, so we need to make sure that they are thriving as best as they can and that they're enjoying their stay here. Our 
longest running tenant is uh, going on 52 years. We have many stories of people staying with us 20, 30 years. I see kids grow up and leave us. I see death. Our tenants mean everything with us. We're an owner-operator, which is a very rare breed right now. Our interactions with our tenants are close and personal in that they all have my cell phone number. When somebody is coming out of a homelessness, I can understand when they're like, I'm having a little bit of a crisis. I'm like, I get that. Let us help you. Be Connected is also trying to play a critical role in the housing ecosystem, serving as an ongoing resource and connection point for both tenants and landlords, and regularly checking in with tenants to identify any challenges early so they can be addressed. Here's Brittany again. After placement, we make sure that tenants maintain housing, so we give landlords an alternative to eviction. So every 30 days, we continue to follow up with that household, and that's what we're measuring the social indicators of health. So we have actually over 60 indicators of health to keeping a household in their unit. We partner with about 3,500 units in the Denver metro area, and we have a 90% housing retention rate. Be Connected is filling a gap in the system. What they, Dan and Grace and others, have found is that there's not nearly enough case management, mental health, and supportive services available for folks living on the margins, especially those who have spent time on the street or who have mental health challenges. And other times there is that hard gap that gap of service. And that makes it really hard when we're talking about eviction prevention within our housing. So Be Connected really fills that just that middle gap and trying to keep working with that landlord. It really does take that whole community to keeping that person housed. While evictions are a tool for landlords, there are many steps for both landlords and tenants before an eviction occurs, leaving a lot of space to address issues that lead to housing instability. And there are organizations like the Colorado Poverty Law Project, which aims to prevent homelessness through legal representation, education, and advocacy. Here's Lauren again. Overall, we specialize in housing. So we have a multidisciplinary team of attorneys, housing and community navigators, and intake specialists who support folks in our community in obtaining and maintaining their housing stability. What role does your organization play around evictions specifically? We support folks in preventing evictions. That's our goal. But that can look a lot of different ways. So if an eviction hasn't been filed yet, we can talk with landlords and send demand letters about threats of eviction or notices the tenants might receive and try to help tenants and landlords fix whatever relationship breakdown there might be. If an eviction case is filed, we can provide information about the process and tenants' rights because it's, it's a really complicated and not very familiar process for anyone who's going through it. We can also support folks in advocating for themselves if they want to do that through the eviction process. And also we represent folks and advocate alongside them to make sure that their rights are heard. Lauren is trying to support tenants to maintain stable housing through mediation or legal representation. Brittany is building and monitoring relationships with tenants to provide monetary or emotional support before it comes to an eviction. Dan is doing his best to support his tenants in getting the assistance they need, whether that be food, 
mental health, or case management. And Grace is trying to build and maintain a sense of community in her properties. This sense of community and relationship is critical for everyone, as Rhiannon shared. I would hope that Deborah could get help and resources and maybe come to live the end of her life in peace and not believing that somebody is truly out to get her and terrorizing her every day and every night in her own home. I feel for her, like this whole process has been a huge lesson in compassion for others and compassion for myself. And at first I mentioned earlier that it felt like a personal attack. And I really turned that around into feeling like, gosh, I feel so bad for my neighbors that they're in so much pain, that they're in so much distress. I've been really trying to help myself in my own mental health. And I can now see how other people are like negatively affected by their mental health every day and how little resources we have to offer them. I do think that Deborah has been dealt with as kind of the villain of the story. Like, oh, she's a crazy old lady. We talked to her, but we didn't get anywhere. So we're just going to let you deal with it because I don't know what we can do. And honestly, like, I don't know what they can do either. I don't know what I would do in that situation because evicting, it sounds like such a harsh punishment because where would she go? What would she do? How would she figure that out on her own? I would feel extremely terrible for Deborah and I would empathize with her because that, that seems like the worst case scenario, the most heartless and inhumane way to end this situation. As you can see, If we really want to keep people who have housing in housing, we need to drive support much further upstream than evictions. We need to think about requirements for rental companies around habitability and how that's monitored and enforced. And we need to put a lot more resources and effort into making those wraparound support services accessible in a timely manner. This would ensure that tenants and landlords helping tenants get what they need when they need it. Thank you to all of our guests for sharing their expertise and experiences with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Join us for our next episode on Dignity in Death. This is a difficult topic in the best of circumstances, and it can be even harder for the unhoused but there is hope. We'll see you next time. When she came to us, she stayed here um, a little over a month. She never went back to the hospital. She was very comfortable. She was happy to be here. She took her medications just as the doctor ordered, but she was well taken care of and she died in peace here the way she wanted to go. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jonna Flood. Narration brought to you by me, Nathan Havey. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by the Olympic Recording Studio. If you found this episode interesting and would like to learn more about our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. 
It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver.